You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Kingsway. Super glad you're here with us today. If you're visiting, maybe your first few times. I met a gentleman this morning. It's his third time here, so we welcome you. How long have you been here? Welcome to Kingsway. We're in a series through a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And uh, what we're told in the Bible is Solomon, the, the wisest man apart from Jesus ever to walk the face of the earth, he wrote a thousand and five love songs. And uh, this was his favorite. And what's interesting is the way that, that both Israel and then the church have interpreted the book over years. And so basically, for a lot of history, uh, the book has been interpreted as God's love story over his people. And uh, I do think today's text especially fits that. You'll see that. But uh, I land in the other camp. It's a little bit more of a newer camp, which might mean I'm wrong. It's definitely possible. It wouldn't be the first time, and it won't be the last time. But uh, over the last 200 years of archaeology, we've discovered a number of love songs and love poems that were written around the same time, and they were probably used in modern-day weddings, which has left a lot of us to go, hey, this was probably a love song that was written about a couple, generically a couple. And so you see Solomon in there and not, and, and it may be about Solomon, or it may just be about a person. And so I say all that because uh, we're, the approach we take is as we were walking through the story, you see a couple fall in love in the date, and today they're going to get married. It's going to be glorious. But if they get married today, then guess what next week is? What follows the, the, the wedding? The honeymoon. So you may not want to bring your kids with you next week. Um, it's very uh, graphic language. We're going to leave it at that. And the high schoolers who come to the service are like, yay. Okay. So moving on. Uh, years ago, years ago, um, you know, when we did weddings, there were, there were certain elements that were somewhat standard or traditional. Over the last 10 years or so, people kind of blown all that up and everything is different now. But this particular groom, he was talking with the pastors that were playing in the wedding. And he said, I just don't understand. Why does the bride wear white? You know, and the pastor went on to say all these things, trying to help him understand. But he's like, you know, it just goes to show her, her radiance and her joy and excitement. She's so excited about this day. She's going to be radiating with, you know, just, just beauty and, and, and passion. And, and he said, well, then why does the groom wear black? <laughs> all right, that's probably not a true story. But, but today what we're going to see is uh, a wedding that's being planned. And Solomon, or whoever the gentleman is in the story, is going to spare no expense. I want to encourage you to spare some expense. The average wedding today, according to a simple Google search, uh, is over $30,000. Yeah, some of you are like, what? I'm just telling you, that money goes a long way towards making a down payment on a house. Now, I don't know if you know this, these, these data points may be a little bit dated. They came from a book I'm using in this series by a guy named Tommy Nelson, but he says this, a recent survey, now the book's about 10 years old, so a recent survey concluded that 80% of relationships in which the couples live together without marriage vows end in separation, 80%. I know there's a common belief today, let's try before we buy, but what you find is it often doesn't work. It's the commitment that makes it work. Not only that, 60% of those who are married by a justice of the peace or a magistrate are divorced later. But don't get too judgmental, right? For some of you are feeling that way because 40% of marriages in the church end in divorce also. But this is the one that's most fascinating. Those who read their Bible together daily, one out of 1,050 
end in divorce. So the reason I say that is uh, what you spend on a day is less important than what you're investing in each other and in God through a lifetime. Because a fine wedding is pricey, but a fine marriage is priceless. And after the last service, one sweet older lady came to me, gave me a hug with tears pouring down her cheeks. And um, she said, Pastor, my husband passed away, I think she said 24 years ago. And she's like, I have been blessed every day since then. But that's not what she meant. She meant, I miss him like crazy. She said, literally, she goes, he did such a great job of loving me and my family that to this day, I'm still reaping the benefits of the plans that he made for us before he passed. And I thought, praise God for a man like that. Today, I am going to call you men to be men like that. Women, this would be a great message to keep your elbows to yourselves. However, I am also going to have a moment where I deeply offend the women in the room, and I'm going to ask you men to simply hold your bride and say, he's an idiot, honey. I don't know what he's talking about. He has no clue. We should find a new church. No, 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 no. (laughs) Please don't do that. Instead, let's open up God's word and just see where it takes us, and let's just be a people who are committed to go wherever it takes us. Because James tells us, do not be merely hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Because if we listen to it but do nothing about it, we deceive ourselves. We look at it and we go, oh, I'm good. But what if we aren't so good? All right, here we go. Song of Solomon, chapter three, verse six. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from the spices of the merchant? I don't have time to unpack all this. That's a whole sermon in itself. But there's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever that this is supposed to look back at the story of the Exodus. If you don't know the story of the Exodus, don't have time to go into it, but God led the Israelites out of uh, being slaves in Egypt, led them through the wilderness and into the promised land. He led them with a fire by day, and a, or a cloud by day and a fire by night. And so you get a column of smoke. He met with them on a mountaintop and a pillar of smoke. There's literally no doubt that it's looking at that. Also, as a Christian, does the idea of frankincense and myrrh sound familiar to anybody? right? It's coming up here in a few months. Uh, you can go see it at Lowe's probably already or Home Depot or anyway. So the whole idea here is this is part of the reason why some people who have that allegory approach of Jesus in the church, they look at verses like this and they see it steeped in biblical allegory. But what I want you to see is he's coming from the wilderness. Anytime you look in your scriptures, you will hear them say they went up to Jerusalem because if you normally we think of up as like, you know, Carmel or Brownsburg or, you know, Chicago, because it's on a map, it's north. But Israel is up on a mountain and the wilderness is down. In fact, down by the Dead Sea, it's 1300 uh, feet below zero. I believe I'm saying that right. Below sea level, not below zero. That'd be freezing. We mean uh, below zero. So it always says they went up to the temple, up to Jerusalem. And so what I think is happening is Solomon is creating his wedding party. He goes down from Judea, picks up his bride-to-be, and they go up to Jerusalem for this beautiful wedding. It says in verse 7, look, it's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel. Solomon uh, united the kingdom in a way that nobody else ever had. I don't know if you know this or not, Solomon had 1,000 women in his life, 700 wives, 300 concubine. That's a lot of women. This is evil. The Bible says this is not good, does not affirm this. Just because it tells us Solomon did it does not mean it says it's good. It creates a conundrum for this book because it's like, well, which of his wives is he talking about? Which is why I think it's more like a love story. It's not about his favorite wife and their love story. But the reason these 60 warriors is important is because we see in these warriors, these are probably the toughest men on the face of the earth. 
In this season, Israel is the powerhouse nation in the world. They are awesome. And their opulence and their grandeur, these guys are the toughest guys. I'm afraid to compare them to somebody because of how many different armed forces, gentlemen and women we have in our church. You know, if I say the Rangers, then my SEALs get mad. If I say the SEALs, then my Marines get mad. So what I like to do is when I'm in the foyer and I'm meeting somebody who has spent some time either, say, even as a police officer in the armed forces, and, and then another person walks up and that's their story, I always ask him who would win if they got in a fight in front of each other. And then I watch them, I watch them walk out this um, confident humility in front of, well, you know, I, um, you know, well, uh, and then they walk away. I'm like, what's the real answer? Would you, would you, could you kick their butt? Would you win? And what I found out is Danielle Smalley, who was in the Navy, she beats them all. She could whoop them all. So, um, <laughs> hey, hey, moving on. She's not here today. So I guess uh, she goes back and watches this. I'll be in trouble. All right. Solomon's carriage here is the word mitta, mitta. And it literally means a couch or a bed. And uh, what you get is this picture of Solomon as being carried along by these soldiers. How strong are these dudes? that they are carrying Solomon miles, probably from Judea to the wilderness and then up to the city of Jerusalem. They're probably taking turns doing it, but you get this idea of poles and then there's some sort of bedish couch thing. And then it says in verse eight, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. That's an interesting little phrase, right? Night does bring terrors, doesn't it? What you're to make of this is Solomon is not only going to put together the pomp and the circumstance to spoil his bride-to-be, but he's also going out of his way to make sure that she feels 100% safe. The groom is going out of his way to make sure she feels safe. Men. This is my first point of like poking a little, all right? Does your bride or a girlfriend, feels safe with you. I like to kind of get my brain going. I'm not one of those guys who can just hop out of bed and go about the day. I know I'll surprise everybody. If you know how much energy I have once I get going, it just takes me a little bit to get going. When I get going, it doesn't stop. But I lay in bed and I like to read my Bible and I like to check up and see if there's any emails and I like to read the news. And this morning, for some reason, I turned on the news and I was just, you know, I read it all the night before, so I was pretty up to date on what was going on in the world, but there was a story that popped up about a, a gentleman who recently was caught for killing his ex-wife. And the news article went through in great detail the way that he did it. And I won't do that for you because it really turned my stomach over. And it just made me go, there are people who are so mean in the world that they literally use their hands or their voice or their actions to hurt and to harm. But that's not Solomon. Solomon's gonna go out of his way to make sure she feels safe. The 60 guards are there so that she knows when the terrors of the night come, baby, I got your back. There's a lot of ways that we can make a person feel unsafe and a lot of ways we can make them feel safe. One of the ways we can make somebody feel safe, we'll actually talk in more detail about this over the next couple weeks, but uh, it's listening to a person. If we don't listen to a person, we don't tell them they're important or valuable. What they have to say isn't relevant. But when we do listen to a person, we invite them in to share, to process. When we come to marriage and we say, whatever the phrase you use, we use different vows today, but I really like the vows, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, 
in sickness and in health. And then there's that last little phrase, till death do us part, until one of us dies. And the reason that's important is because what I'm saying is in this relationship, baby, I'm in it with you to the very end. And I'm going to take care of you and I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna serve you and I will not quit on you. How are you doing it helping the person that you're committing your life to feel that? If you don't know, ask them later. If you don't wanna do that, you might already have your answer. Now let me talk for a second about where all this began because marriage was actually God's idea. And that's part of what we see wrapped up in this is this is God's idea. Let me just say, I said this a few weeks ago when we quoted some of the Kingsway people who shared their thoughts about their marriage. I don't believe, you know, whatever, 8 billion people in the world, I don't know what the number is. I don't believe it's like there's one person in the world just for you. And so if you don't ever find them, ah, it's gonna be a miserable life. Or if you pick, if you found the wrong one, ah, it's gonna be terrible. I don't, that's not how marriage works. But I do believe, and I have seen that God has his way of bringing people together. And it's that tension that we feel between what we call human free will and God's sovereignty. And I'm okay with the tension. I'm okay with saying that God gave me the gift of my wife, but also saying that sometimes her husband can be difficult, right? I'm okay with the tension of those two things. That doesn't mean that God made a bad choice. It means her husband made a bad choice. God is good and God is faithful and God is gonna be committed to making it work out because marriage was God's idea in the first place. I don't know if you knew this. In the very beginning, we're told, so you got day one, Genesis chapter one, God created the, you know, all the things, planets and trees and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, the whole nine yards, he created it all, right? So then it says at the very end of the last day that God put, created them male and female, and then on the seventh day, they rested. So I guess the second to last day, he created them male and female. Well, chapter two, like chapter one is like this big arctic view. Chapter two, like then zooms in on the story for a minute and says, here's the actual process by which God created them. So on chapter two, what we see is God creates a garden and he literally builds and cultivates a garden. God did all the work. Then outside the garden, he goes to the dirt and he forms Adam and he brings him and he places Adam in the garden. And this is nice because Adam shows up and he's like, ah, oh, this is awesome. This place is beautiful. God says, Adam, I made you for a reason. You got a work to do. And so God gives him a work to do in the garden. Let's, let's read some of this and then we'll unpack it as we go. Ready? Genesis chapter two, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So see, God puts Adam into the garden, but Adam doesn't have a counterpart. And so God looks and for the first time, all of chapter one, he's like, oh, this is good. The planets, that's good. Oh, 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 the animals, that's good. Fishies, that's a good thing. These are good. But then God looks at Adam and he's in the garden without a counterpart. And he goes, oh, that's not good. And the word here, helper suitable, I believe it's the King James version says a help meet. But it's literally in the Hebrew, Azer Konegdo. Say that 10 times fast. It is notoriously a difficult phrase because we don't know exactly what it means. But the two words together, Azer and Konegdo, and Azer means something like, like, which is really weird in English to say. It means something similar to like or similar, but Konegdo means something like opposite or against. And so it means something to the, to the extent of like, like, I keep saying like, and like is in the word, it makes it really hard. Like against. You're like, that's weird. Aren't you glad we went with helpmate before? What it has to do with, it has to do with a counterpart. 
a part that is complementary, different from, but very, very similar, but different from. And so when God made Eve, what he did is he put Adam into a deep sleep in the garden. Then he reached into Adam's side, pulled out one of Adam's ribs, and made Eve. And I heard it said years ago, if God had taken something out of Adam's head, then Eve would have been above him. If he'd taken something out of Adam's feet, then Eve would have been beneath him. But the fact that he took Adam or Eve from Adam's side makes her a counterpart. They're similar but different. This is a strong argument, by the way, against homosexual marriage and relationships. But I don't have time to go into that right now. It's not the focus. God made two parts that when they came together, wonderful things could happen. Beautiful things could happen. Let's take a look at the story and see this unfold. I've kind of explained it to you. Let's read it now. Ready? Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground of all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no azer connecto was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. So the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man, now think about this. He looks at her and he says, no, go back, you're okay. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And the first pun entered the world. The dad jokes have become a thing ever since. Now, this is beautiful, beautiful in the Hebrew. It's the first love song. The first love song ever created was about a man singing over his bride. Do you ever find a great love song on the radio and you think to yourself, oh, that's our song, baby. You got a song? Oh, that's our song. Every time I hear that, every time I hear that, I think of you. Every time that song comes on the radio, baby, I call you, I text you like, I love you, the greatest ever. First love song ever. It was Adam singing about his wife. Now, if you just unfold the details of the story, in the story, God gave Adam a job to do, and his job was to name the animals, and all the animals had a counterpart, right? The male lion, a female lion, the male elephant, the female elephant, whatever it was. We don't know what animals were present. Whatever they were, he names them all, but then Adam gets lonely. Men, do you ever get lonely when you're away from your counterpart for very long? I know some of you are like, no, I don't know how to make that happen. How do I get away? My wife took my sons and went to Kentucky. It's her mom's birthday, and she threw she and her brother through a big party for her mom. So I am batching it for about, I think we're just now at 24 hours, almost exactly to this moment. We're at 24 hours. And the first three or four hours are glorious. I do whatever I want. And there's nobody that needs food or needs laundry done. I mean, they do, but I don't care because I'm going to do whatever I want. (laughs) And then about hour four sets in and I'm like, what day are you coming home, baby? (laughs) Now, there are some times where she'll do this and she'll be like, you know, I'm going to take the kids, go see grandma and grandpa. And I make it a, a day, a day. Can you imagine that? A whole day. And it's like, this is the best thing ever. And then like day two, I'm like, hey, I miss you. Say, um, yeah, you want to talk? And she's like, I can't talk. I'm putting the boys to bed. I'm like, oh, okay, well, call me when they're down, right? And she calls like, I'm really tired. I'm like, oh, but I miss you so much. So like, I don't know, maybe I'm the only guy, but I'm a pack animal. I do not do well without my counterpart. This is Adam. And I believe that this is unfolding theologically more than it is anything else. It's not like God made Adam and then went, oh, I knew I forgot something. What was I thinking? This is all part of the plan. 
It is part of the strategy because God knew, Adams, don't miss this. God knew that it would be easy for you to pour yourself into your work and forget you felt alone at one point. And I've been saying this to Adams for a few decades now. You need to remember that she was a gift that God gave you so that you would make her precious and adore her. Remember when you used to sing her love songs? Remember when you chased her and pursued her? Remember when you saw her and you, whoo, that bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, woman, I love you. Do you remember that? Because what happens is it's easy for man to get married and then to turn his attention to all the other things he wanted to get done in his life. And it's amazing how many times I meet women who say, I don't feel cherished and protected and loved and special and adored. I don't feel sung over. But that's what Adam did. In fact, he goes on, it says in verse 24, actually God says, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother is united to his wife and they become one flesh, one flesh. The whole goal of marriage is for the two of us to be able to become one of us. I told you, it's terrible math. One plus one makes one, a whole new one. It is a day of celebrating. So let me just, just generically, couples in the room, what are you doing to build oneness into your marriage? Here's some things I would suggest. Now, these aren't in scripture, so these are from Matt Nickerson, but they're based off of this principle. You can't live separate lives and be one flesh. One flesh is so much more than the intimacy we'll talk about next week. It's that and so much more. If you have separate bank accounts, you're not really being one flesh. If you have separate homes, you're not really being one flesh. Of course, you're probably going to both need your own car, but you need to be able to build one flesh. If you have a prenuptial agreement, you are not actually going into it expecting to be one. It's like you're planning for the day when we're no longer together. How is that honoring to the, what God has called us to do? If every time there's a problem, you run back to mom or dad to fix the problem, how is that honoring leaving your father and mother to become one flesh? Don't get me wrong, mom and dad can be a great asset if they're godly, healthy people. But even in the best of situations, if you run to mom or dad to work out your problem, you're probably just creating drama down the road because now there's brokenness between mama and them or daddy and them. And that's a gap to overcome. Now, what would it look like if you were to say, I'm gonna work everything out with you? One of the greatest things that ever happened to both Rachel and I was we literally got married and then moved to Colorado within a week or two of our wedding day. And yeah, it made it hard at times because we didn't have anybody to lean into, but we also didn't have anybody else to lean into. We had to figure it out. And then here's the climactic part, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I've used this so many times over the years. Forgive me if you've been here with me for 14 years, but it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because what it tells me is in the beginning, before sin ruined everything, Adam and Eve felt safe, felt safe. And that's the end game of marriage is that Adam's and Eve's would create an environment where you can explore life together. It was supposed to be an adventure together. They were supposed to expand the garden together. They were supposed to multiply together. They were supposed to subdue the earth together. The together was supposed to be the goal. But what happens today is like we get married and then we stop doing everything together. It's like you got your life and I got my life. And then, you know, we'll, we'll occasionally do this thing together. We both got to get the house done or the laundry done or the dishes done or whatever it is. But like, how do we get back to like, we're actually living a life together. 
One of my favorite books, I recommend every man read it and very few do, but most women do and you'll love it too, ladies. It's called Captivating. It's by John and Stacy Eldridge. And in the book, in the very beginning, she tells this great story. I'm gonna summarize some of it and then I'll read some of it. She talks about how they went to the Grand Tetons and it was getting to be nighttime. And uh, she literally says to John, Stacy does, the wife, she says, uh, hey, let's pull the car over and let's put the, the canoes into the, the, the water right here. And it's getting so close to dark, but they decide to do it. She just drinks in the moment. She's literally talking about here, you know, seeing the owls and hearing the owls and looking at this and seeing the stars and all this stuff. But about 20 minutes or so in the water, it starts to get really dark. And I'll pick up her words there. If I flip to the right page here. She says, the evening was stunning, the river's graceful movements caused the water's colors to shift from cobalt to silver and then to black. No other person was in sight. We had oxbow bend to ourselves. In record time, we had the canoe in the river, life vest securely fastened, paddles at the ready, boys installed, and off we went. A race to drink as deeply, as much beauty as possible together. An old wooden bridge hung low across the river. Its broken remains looked as though they would collapse at the next strong breeze. We had to literally duck to pass underneath. Carefully, we navigated the winding channels of the snake. John was in the back and I was in the front. Our three boys were in between, full of wonder and delight. As the stars began to come out, we were like the children present at the creation of Narnia. Then nighttime fell. It was time to take out. We planned to go ashore along a cove closest to the road so we wouldn't have to walk too far to find our car. We didn't dare try to take out where we had put in. That would require paddling against the current with little ability to see where we were going. As we drifted toward the bank, a bull moose rose from the tall grasses exactly where we had planned to come ashore. He was as dark as the night. We could see him only because he was silhouetted against the sky, jagged mountains behind. He was huge. He was gorgeous. He was in the way blocking the only exit we had. I don't know if you know this, more people are killed in national parks by moose than any other animal. Remarkable speed, 1,700 pounds of muscle and antlers and total unpredictability make them dangerous indeed. It would take about two seconds for him to hit the water running and capsize our canoe. We could not pass. The mood changed. John and I were worried now. There was only one alternative to this way out. Now, closed ahead of us, and that was paddling back up river in what had become a total darkness. Silently, soberly, we turned the canoe and are headed up, searching for the right channel that would keep us out of the main current. We hadn't planned on the adventure taking that turn. But suddenly, everything was required. John must steer with skill. I must paddle with strength. One mistake on our part, and the strong current would force the canoe broadside, fill it, and sweep our boys downriver into the night. And then she says, it was glorious. She said, we did it. He did. I did. We rose to the challenge working together. And the fact that it required all of me, that I was in it with my family and for my family, that I was surrounded by wild, shimmering beauty, and it was, well, kind of dangerous, made the time transcendent. 
See, I'm convinced that the reason God created marriage is because he wanted it to be a place where the two would come together on this grandiose adventure called life together. So then no matter what we're facing, whether it's a bull moose or somebody else's bull, we would be able to overcome it together. 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 But see, what went wrong is in the Bible story. Because right after Eve is made and she's naked and they have no shame and Adam sings a love song over her and the two are going to leave their families and become one unit. I mean, as all of this is happening, the very next story tells us about the day it all broke. As God would have it, in the garden, God went to Adam and he said, Adam, you can eat of all of the trees that I have put in this garden except for one. Stay away from this tree. God never told Eve that. It was Adam's job to teach Eve and to protect her, but he didn't. And so Satan comes down in the form of a serpent, whatever that means, a story for another day, and Satan begins to tempt Eve. And he said, did God really say? And he just twists God's word a little. And it made Eve wonder if I, she could really trust God. Is he really trustworthy? So she takes the fruit of the one tree she's not supposed to, she eats from it, and then she looks at Adam, she's like, oh, Adam, you have no idea what you were missing out on. And Adam, instead of protecting his wife, Instead of making the garden a safe place for her, he took his well. And everything fell apart ever since then. In fact, we're told next that God comes down and there are these curses, these punishments are going to happen because we don't follow God. We don't do what he told us. We do what we want. And to Adam, I think it's interesting. He says, there will now be thorns and thistles in your work. And if you think only literal thorns and literal thistles, not whistles, that is true, but then then you only really see the effect of sin when you're gardening. I think it is so much bigger than that. I think it's about work in general. Men, have you ever noticed that you thought your job would provide so much more for you and your identity and your security, but the harder you go after it, the less it gives you? Have you ever noticed you work and you work and you work and you just can't seem to find financial security? Have you noticed that? I think there's something going on in the Genesis story that's being told for us there. But then notice he says to Eve in chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Have you ever noticed, have you ever watched a horse or a giraffe or something else give birth? I mean, it's not comfortable, but it's not like female birth. If evolution is correct, tell me how we made this one worse. Like, we evolved to make everything better except for childbirth. We made that one worse. But what if evolution wasn't the way that God actually created the world? What if there was a master planner and part of this, for whatever the reason being, part of the pain of childbirth, ladies, am I right? Hurts a little bit? Was because of the curses of sin. And then he goes on, he says, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's something in this last phrase that's in God's word that just describes the way marriage is today for a lot of people. Remember in the garden, Eve came out of Adam's side. They were to co-rule together. She was the perfect counterpart, the Azer Konegdo. The Azer Konegdo is only used in the Bible outside of Genesis 2 to describe God. That's how important she is. God comes alongside us, comes alongside his people to help us get things done. That was the beauty of chapter 2, but we're now in chapter 3. And the story is broken. And even though she is his counterpart, he has this authoritative relationship in their marriage. And, oh, it's going to be a problem because you're going to desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. 
You could make part of the problem the way she desires to have the authority. You could make part of the problem the way that he chooses to rule. And in marriages, it usually is both. I find it fascinating in the same book, Captivating, that I quoted earlier. John and Stacey Eldridge, they quote a lady whose name is Jan Myers. And she says this, Eve is deceived, and rather easily, As my friend Jan Myers points out, in The Allure of Hope, Jan says, Eve was convinced that God was withholding something from her. Not even the extravagance of Eden could convince her that God's heart is good. When Eve was deceived, the artistry of being a woman took a fateful dive into the barren places of control and loneliness. Now, every daughter of Eve wants to control her surroundings, her relationships, her God. And before we move on with the quote, ladies, I promise I'm going to get back to dinging the guys a little bit, but can you relate? Do you struggle to trust that God really is good, that he really does have your best interests in mind, that you really can trust him? And if you really do what he's asking you to do, he really will take care of you. Jan goes on, she says, no longer is she vulnerable, now she will be grasping. No longer does she want simply to share in the adventure, now she wants to control it. And as for her beauty, she either hides it in fear and anger or she uses it to secure her place in the world. Oh man, don't we see that all over TikTok, Facebook, and X today? The quote goes on, in our fear that no one will speak on our behalf or protect us or fight for us, we start to recreate both ourselves and our role in the story. We manipulate our surroundings so we don't feel so defenseless. Do you understand why Solomon providing 60 warriors with swords is a big deal now? Because Solomon in the song, Songs of Solomon, he's trying to help you understand how much lengths that a good husband will go to so that his bride feels safe. Men, do you know that this is how your wives often feel? If they don't, well done, it's because you've created a great home. The quote finishes out. Fallen Eve either becomes rigid or clingy. Put simply, Eve is no longer simply inviting She is either hiding in busyness or demanding that Adam come through for her, usually an odd combination of both. Okay, so ladies, let me get back to your husbands now. (laughs) This is why it's so important, men, that you are patient and gracious and kind and faithful and loving and considerate because your wives are always wrestling under the weight of your supposed leadership. So if you lead well, you create a safe place for them to walk that out. And if you don't, let me just tell you, I spend a lot of time with couples who don't. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says this, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Two things. Weaker partner, I heard a pastor a long time ago, he described this as like fine china. Very few of us use fine china today, but fine china used to be that thing you kept away and it was special and it was precious and you brought it out on special occasion. It wasn't common. You didn't dare wash it in the dishwasher. You treated it with extra special loving care. And that's the concept behind this. Physically, we know women aren't as strong as men. I don't care what anybody says today. 
Men and women should not be competing in the same sports. God built the male body bigger and stronger because he built woman different. She was like similar, but different, complementary too. And that's okay that God built us different. Women can do amazing things men can't do. That pain we talked about in childbearing, uh-uh. Ain't no guy making it through that. At least not this guy. But men, don't miss this. Treating your wife with a delicate, loving care as an heir. What that means is she's co-equal. When we get to heaven, it won't be like men and then women. It'll be men and women. And when that happens, your prayers will not be hindered. Men, if you have ever wondered if God's not answering your prayers, how about your private life? Are you honoring your bride and your words and your actions toward her? What about privately when she's not in the room? The images you're looking at on your screen, the thoughts in your head, the fantasies, the ideas, the curses. What about the jokes that you tell? Do they demean her? Do they bring her down or do they build her up? Because if we ever feel this brokenness between us and God, Jesus already closed that gap. If there's brokenness between us and God, probably it's because there's brokenness somewhere else in our life and we are fixing it. And God's like, no, 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 no. See, if I start answering all these things you're asking me for, if I start doing all that stuff and you don't fix that first, then you think I don't care. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Is there anything you need to do? Is there anything God is convicting you of? Is there any change you need to make? Is there anything you need to apologize for? Let's go back to the song of Solomon, verse nine. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. What you're gonna see here for the next couple of verses, just basically Solomon put a lot of care into it. The wood from Lebanon is cedar wood. Oh, cedar smells amazing to us and terrible to moths, but it's also highly respected wood. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll read of the trees of Lebanon or the cedar of Lebanon. Uh, the temple of God was made with this wood. Solomon's house was made with this wood. Basically, Solomon spared no expense. He made a carriage from the best of the best. And the word carriage here is the word apirion, apirion. And uh, it means something like a sedan. That was not helpful to me because when I think of a sedan, I think of a car. And so I was like, what does that mean? And then the other word that popped up was litter. That was even less helpful to me. And so this last word, the palanquin, palanquin, is a word I had to go look up. And here is a picture of a palanquin. And uh, I know it's hard, a little hard to make out. So here you have this, in this particular story, you've got a lady, she's on her wedding day and she's inside this nice little carriage thing and being carried by poles. And so imagine now, there's this big hoopla and pomp and circumstance. You got a harp here, you got a shofar here, you got people carrying this thing. Imagine one that was for two and you've got Solomon in a spot for his bride to be. The whole idea here is Solomon went out of his way to create a place where she would feel special and precious and loved and adored and safe. And they all got swords. And this is what is pictured for a marriage. That's why in verse 10, it says, it's posts he made of silver, it's base of gold, it's seat was upholstered with purple, it's interior inlaid with love. And then it closes verse 11. And daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now, I know this. One day, Jesus is going to come back. And there'll be one of those shofar, one of those horns will be blasted. And the dead in Christ will rise. And there will be a wedding celebration like you have never seen. You can't even imagine. 
and all pain and all suffering and all brokenness and all lies and all deceit and all evil will be removed finally and forever. And it says in Revelation that the bride of Christ will come down beautifully adorned and dressed for her groom. And I say that because I want to send you into communion right now. I'm going to ask you to take out your communion cup. And as you take communion this morning, I want you to remember this important thing. Jesus is with you. He loves you. But he longs to transform you. So whatever you need from him right now, I want you to go into this time and just lay it out before him. And if you sense God's spirit convicting you, maybe make a suggestion. Maybe if you're a lady and you feel like you've been too controlling, too manipulative, maybe it's time to say, God, I need your help. I need to change. And if you're a man in this room and honestly, you have not been honoring your bride, you know it because she tells you. Or maybe you know it because God's spirit has convicted you. Maybe it's time to go to that person and say, hey, God is showing me your right and I'm sorry. I'm gonna do is pray and I'm gonna hand you the prayer and whatever business you need to do with God, do it. And then ask him for the courage to follow through. Ready? Father, meet us in this place. Wash us clean again by the blood of Jesus as we celebrate his body that was broken for us. Lord, we thank you for your grace that is so good to us. Grace that doesn't just wash away our sin, but also transforms us. And I pray for every man and woman in this room, God, that you would continue to transform us by the name of Jesus. As we lean into you and find the strength and the courage to do what we need to do, may we be bold in Jesus' name.